Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Why does Hercule Poirot suddenly decide that he absolutely must travel to Paris? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Jolly old Saint Nicholas, lean your ear this way. Don't you tell a single soul what I'm going to say. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast. And it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporting member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. We actually have physical merchandise this year. If you're a Classic Tales fan, we've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more at our online merchandise store. Do you know an erudite troglodyte? Maybe you know a Jane Austen fan who would love a Pride and Prejudice tote bag. How about a hoodie of the Count of Monte Cristo or Wuthering Heights? Click on the link in the description for this episode to get a unique gift for the literary lover in your life. Now for our personal moment. We have some kind of crazy Christmas traditions I wanted to share with you guys. So whenever we're in the car together all driving around, if somebody sees Christmas lights, we announce the discovery by making the sound of a chicken from Arrested Development. Each character in Arrested Development, they each make a chicken sound, and it's all different, and none of them sound like chickens. And so we'll just be driving around, and somebody will go, a koodle-doodle-doo, or cuckoo-ka-cha, and then we all have to do it. Another thing we do is whenever we hear a Dean Martin Christmas song, Let It Snow is our favorite one, everyone in the car has to pretend like he or she is holding a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the other, And they're swaying around and singing like they're really tipsy. Because that's how Dean Martin sounds every dang time. So, again, once one person starts, everybody in the car has to do it, even the driver. And finally, Scylla is an amazing designer. I posted a picture of our Christmas tree on Facebook, in case you're interested. And that's our personal moment. There you go. And now, the murder on the links. Part 4 of 7 by Agatha Christie Choose for me, dear Santa Claus You will know the best Oh yes, you will Chapter 12 Poirot elucidates certain points 
Why did you measure that overcoat? I asked with some curiosity, as we walked down the hot white road at a leisurely pace. Parbleu! To see how long it was, replied my friend imperturbably. I was vexed. Poirot's incurable habit of making a mystery out of nothing never failed to irritate me. I relapsed into silence and followed a train of thought of my own. Although I had not noticed them specially at the time, certain words Mrs. Renault had addressed to her son now recurred to me, fraught with new significance. So you did not sail, she had said, and then had added, After all, it does not matter now. What had she meant by that? The words were enigmatical, significant. Was it possible that she knew more than we supposed? She had denied all knowledge of the mysterious mission with which her husband was to have entrusted his son. But was she really less ignorant than she pretended? Could she enlighten us if she chose? And was her silence part of a carefully thought out and preconceived plan? The more I thought about it, the more I was convinced that I was right. Mrs. Renault knew more than she chose to tell. In her surprise at seeing her son, she had momentarily betrayed herself. I felt convinced that she knew, if not the assassins, at least the motive for the assassination. But some very powerful considerations must keep her silent. You think profoundly, my friend, remarked Poirot, breaking in upon my reflections. What is it that intrigues you so? I told him, sure of my ground, though feeling expectant that he would ridicule my suspicions. But to my surprise he nodded thoughtfully. You are quite right, Hastings. From the beginning I have been sure she was keeping something back. At first I suspected her, if not of inspiring, at least of conniving at the crime. You suspected her? I cried. But certainly. She benefits enormously. In fact, by this new will, she is the only person to benefit. So from the start, she was singled out for attention. You may have noticed that I took an early opportunity of examining her wrists. I wished to see whether there was any possibility that she had been gagged and bound herself. Eh bien, I saw at once that there was no fake. The cords had actually been drawn so tight as to cut into the flesh. That ruled out the possibility of her having committed the crime single-handed. But it was still possible for her to have connived at it, or to have been the instigator with an accomplice. Moreover, the story, as she told it, was singularly familiar to me. The masked men that she could not recognize, the mention of this secret. I had heard or read all these things before. Another little detail confirmed my belief that she was not speaking the truth. The wristwatch, Hastings. The wristwatch. Again, that wristwatch. Poirot was eyeing me curiously. You see, mon ami, you comprehend? No, I replied with some ill humor. I neither see nor comprehend. You make all these confounded mysteries, and it's useless asking you to explain. You always like keeping everything up your sleeve to the last minute. Do not enrage yourself, my friend, said Poirot with a smile. I will explain, if you wish, but not a word to Giraud, 
The entendu? He treats me as an old one of no importance. We shall see. In common fairness, I gave him a hint. If he does not choose to act upon it, that is his own lookout. I assured Poirot that he could rely upon my discretion. C'est bien. Let us then employ our little grey selves. Tell me, my friend, at what time, according to you, did the tragedy take place? Why, two o'clock or thereabouts, I said, astonished. You remember, Mrs. Renault told us that she heard the clock strike when the men were in the room. Exactly. And on the strength of that, you and the examining magistrate Bex and everyone else accept the time without further question. But I, Hercule Poirot, say that Madame Renault lied. The crime took place at least two hours earlier. But the doctors, they declared, after examination of the body, that death had taken place between ten and seven hours previously. Mon ami, for some reason it was imperative that the crime should seem to have taken place later than it actually did. You have read of a smashed watch or clock recording the exact hour of a crime? So that the time should not rest on Mrs. Renault's testimony alone, someone moved on the hands of that wristwatch to two o'clock, and then dashed it violently to the ground. But, as is often the case, they defeated their own object. The glass was smashed, but the mechanism of the watch was uninjured. It was a most disastrous maneuver on their part, for it at once drew my attention to two points. First, that Madame Renault was lying. Secondly, that there must be some vital reason for the postponement of the time. But what reason could there be? Ah, that is the question. There we have the whole mystery. As yet I cannot explain it. There is only one idea that presents itself to me, as having a possible connection. And that is, the last train left Merlonville at seventeen minutes past twelve. I followed it out slowly, so that the crime apparently taking place some two hours later, anyone leaving by that train would have an unimpeachable alibi. Perfect Hastings, you have it! I sprang up. But we must inquire at the station. Surely they cannot have failed to notice two foreigners who left by that train. We must go there at once. You think so, Hastings? Of course. Let us go there now. Poirot restrained my ardour with a light touch upon the arm. Go by all means if you wish, mon ami. But if you go, I should not ask for particulars of two foreigners. I stared, and he said rather impatiently, La, la, you do not believe all that rigmarole, do you? The masked men and all the rest of said history? La! His words took me so much aback that I hardly knew how to respond. He went on serenely. You heard me say to Giraud, did you not, that all the details of this crime were familiar to me? Eh bien, that presupposes one of two things. Either the brain that planned the first crime also planned this one, or else an account read of a cause célèbre unconsciously remained in our assassin's memory and prompted the details. I shall be able to pronounce definitely on that after... He broke off. 
I was revolving sundry matters in my mind. But Mr. Renault's letter, it distinctly mentions a secret in Santiago. Undoubtedly there is a secret in Monsieur Renault's life. There can be no doubt of that. On the other hand, the word Santiago, to my mind, is a red herring, dragged continually across the track to put us off the scent. It is possible that it was used in the same way on Monsieur Renault, to keep him from directing his suspicions into a quarter nearer at hand. Oh, be assured, Hastings, the danger that threatened him was not in Santiago. It was near at hand, in France. He spoke so gravely and with such assurance that I could not fail to be convinced. But I essayed one final objection. And the match and cigarette end found near the body, what of them? A light of pure enjoyment lit up Poirot's face. Planted, deliberately planted there for Giraud or one of his tribe to find. <laughs> he is smart, Giraud. He can do his tricks. So can a good retriever dog. He comes in so pleased with himself. For hours he has crawled on his stomach. See what I have found, he says. And then again to me, what do you see here? Me, I answer, with profound and deep truth? Nothing. And Giraud, the great Giraud, he laughs. He thinks to himself, Oh, that he is imbecile, this old one. But we shall see. But my mind had reverted to the main facts. Then all this story of the masked men is false. What really happened? Poirot shrugged his shoulders. One person could tell us. Madame Renault, but she will not speak. Threats and entreaties would not move her. A remarkable woman, that Hastings. I recognized as soon as I saw her that I had to deal with a woman of unusual character. At first, as I told you, I was inclined to suspect her of being concerned in the crime. Afterwards, I altered my opinion. What made you do that? Her spontaneous and genuine grief at the sight of her husband's body. I could swear that the agony in that cry of hers was genuine. Yes, I said thoughtfully. One cannot mistake these things. I beg your pardon, my friend. One can always be mistaken. Regard the great actress. Does not her acting of grief carry you away and impress you with its reality? No. However strong my own impression and belief, I needed other evidence— before I allowed myself to be satisfied. The great criminal can be a great actor. I base my certainty in this case, not upon my own impression, but upon the undeniable fact that Mrs. Renault actually fainted. I turned up her eyelids and felt her pulse. There was no deception. The swoon was genuine. Therefore, I was satisfied that her anguish was real and not assumed. Besides, a small additional point, not without interest, it was unnecessary for Mrs. Renault to exhibit unrestrained grief. She had had one paroxysm on learning of her husband's death, and there would be no need for her to simulate another such a violent one on beholding his body. No, Mrs. Renault was not her husband's murderess. But why has she lied? She lied about the wristwatch. She lied about the masked men. She lied about a third thing. Tell me, Hastings, 
"'What is your explanation of the open door?' "'Well,' I said, rather embarrassed, "'I suppose it was an oversight. "'They forgot to shut it.' Poirot shook his head and sighed. "'That is the explanation of Giraud. "'It does not satisfy me. "'There is a meaning behind that open door, "'which for a moment I cannot fathom.' "'I have an idea,' I cried suddenly. "'Ah, la bonheur! Let us hear it. Listen. We are agreed that Mrs. Renault's story is a fabrication. Is it not possible, then, that Mr. Renault left the house to keep an appointment, possibly with the murderer, leaving the front door open for his return? But he did not return, and the next morning he is found, stabbed in the back. An admirable theory, Hastings.' but for two facts which you have characteristically overlooked. In the first place, who gagged and bound Madame Renaud? And why on the earth should they return to the house to do so? In the second place, no man on earth would go out to keep an appointment wearing his underclothes and an overcoat. There are circumstances in which a man might wear pajamas and an overcoat, but the other? Never. True. I said, rather crestfallen. No, continued Poirot. We must look elsewhere for a solution of the open-door mystery. One thing I am fairly sure of. They did not leave through the door. They left by the window. What? Precisely. But there were no footmarks in the flower-bed underneath. No. And there ought to have been. Listen, Hastings. The gardener, Auguste, as you heard him say, "'planted both those beds the preceding afternoon. "'In one there are plentiful impressions of his big hobnailed boots. "'In the other, none. "'You see? "'Someone had passed that way. "'Someone who, to obliterate their footprints, "'smoothed over the surface of the bed with a rake. "'Where did they get a rake? "'Where they got the spade and the gardening gloves?' "'said Poirot impatiently. There is no difficulty about that. What makes you think that they left that way, though? Surely it is more probable that they entered by the window and left by the door. That is possible, of course. Yet I have a strong idea that they left by the window. I think you are wrong. Perhaps, mon ami. I mused, thinking over the new field of conjecture that Poirot's deductions had opened up to me. I recalled my wonder at his cryptic allusions to the flower-bed and the wrist-watch. His remarks had seemed so meaningless at the moment, and now, for the first time, I realized how remarkably, from a few slight incidents, he had unravelled much of the mystery that surrounded the case. I paid a belated homage to my friend. As though he read my thoughts, he nodded sagely. Method, you comprehend. Method. Arrange your facts, arrange your ideas, and if some little fact will not fit in, do not reject it, but consider it closely. Though its significance escapes you, be sure that it is significant. In the meantime, I said, considering, although we know a great deal more than we did, we are no nearer to solving the mystery of who killed Mr. Renault. No, said Poirot cheerfully. In fact, we are a great deal further off. The fact seemed to afford him such peculiar satisfaction that I gazed at him in wonder. He met my eye and smiled. 
but yes, it is better so. Before, there was at all events a clear theory as to how and by whose hands he met his death. Now that is all gone, we are in darkness. A hundred conflicting points confuse and worry us. That is well. That is excellent. Out of confusion comes forth order. But if you find order to start with, if a crime seems simple and above board, eh bien, méfiez-vous, it is, how do you say it, cooked. The great criminal is simple, but very few criminals are great. In trying to cover up their tracks, they invariably betray themselves. Ah, mon ami, I would that some day I could meet a really great criminal, one who commits his crime and then does nothing. Even I, Hercule Poirot, might fail to catch such a one. But I had not followed his words. A light had burst upon me. Poirot? Mrs. Renault? I see it now. She must be shielding somebody. From the quietness with which Poirot received my remark, I could see that the idea had already occurred to him. Yes, he said thoughtfully. Shielding someone? or screening someone, one of the two. I saw very little difference between the two words, but I developed my theme with a good deal of earnestness. Poirot maintained a strictly non-committal attitude, repeating, It may be, yes, it may be, but as yet I do not know. There is something very deep underneath all this. You will see. Something... Very deep. Then, as we entered our hotel, he enjoined silence on me with a gesture. Chapter 13 The Girl with the Anxious Eyes We lunched with an excellent appetite. I understood well enough that Poirot did not wish to discuss the tragedy where we could so easily be overheard. But, as is usual when one topic fills the mind to the exclusion of everything else, no other subject of interest seemed to present itself. For a while we ate in silence, and then Poirot observed maliciously, Ah, bien, and your indiscretions, you recount them not? I felt myself blushing. Oh, you mean this morning? I endeavoured to adopt a tone of absolute nonchalance. But I was no match for Poirot. In a very few minutes he had extracted the whole story from me, his eyes twinkling as he did so. Tiens, a story of the most romantic. What is her name, this charming young lady? I had to confess that I did not know. Still more romantic. The first rencontre in the train from Paris, the second here. Journeys end in lovers' meetings. Is not that the saying? Don't be an ass, Poirot. Yesterday it was Mademoiselle Dubreuil. Today it is Mademoiselle Cinderella. Decidedly you have the heart of a Turk, Hastings. You should establish a harem. It is all very well to rag me. Mademoiselle Dubreuil is a very beautiful girl, and I do admire her immensely. I don't mind admitting it. The other's nothing. Don't suppose I shall ever see her again. She was quite amusing to talk to, just for a railway journey. But she's not the kind of girl I should ever get keen on. Why? Well, 
It sounds snobbish, perhaps. But she's not a lady, not in any sense of the word. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. There was less raillery in his voice as he asked, You believe, then, in birth and breathing? I may be old-fashioned, but I certainly don't believe in marrying out of one's class. It never answers. I agree with you, mon ami. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it is as you say. But there is always the hundredth time. Still, that does not arise, as you do not propose to see the lady again. His last words were almost a question, and I was aware of the sharpness with which he darted a glance at me. And before my eyes, writ large in letters of fire, I saw the words, Hotel du Fer, and I heard again her voice saying, Come and look me up, and my own answering with empressement, I will. Well, what of it? I had meant to go at the time, but since then I had had time to reflect. I did not like the girl. Thinking it over in cold blood, I came definitely to the conclusion that I disliked her intensely. I had got hauled over the coals for foolishly gratifying her morbid curiosity, and I had not the least wish to see her again. I answered Poirot lightly enough. She asked me to look her up, but of course I shan't. Why, of course? Well, I don't want to. I see. He studied me attentively for some minutes. Yes, I see very well. And you are wise. Stick to what you have said. That seems to be your invariable advice, I remarked, rather piqued. Ah, my friend, have faith in Papa Poirot. Some day, if you permit, I will arrange you a marriage of great suitability. Thank you, I said, laughing. But the prospect leaves me cold. Poirot sighed and shook his head. Les Anglais, he murmured. No method. Absolutely none whatever. They leave all to chance. He frowned, and altered the position of the salt cellar. Mademoiselle Cinderella is staying at the Hôtel d'Angleterre, you told me, did you not? No, Hôtel du Fer. True, I forgot. A moment's misgiving shot across my mind. Surely I had never mentioned any Hôtel de Poirot. I looked across at him, and I felt reassured. He was cutting his bread into neat little squares, absolutely absorbed in his task. He must have fancied I had told him where the girl was staying. We had coffee outside facing the sea. Poirot smoked one of his tiny cigarettes, and then drew his watch from his pocket. The train to Paris leaves at 2.25, he observed. I should be starting. Paris, I cried. That is what I said, mon ami. You are going to Paris, but why? He replied very seriously. To look for the murderer of Monsieur Renault. You think he is in Paris? I am quite certain that he is not. Nevertheless, it is there that I must look for him. You do not understand. But I will explain it all to you in good time. Believe me, this journey to Paris is necessary. I shall not be away long. In all probability I shall return tomorrow. I do not propose that you should accompany me. Remain here, and keep an eye on Giraud. Also cultivate the society of Monsieur Renaud Fee. 
and thirdly, if you wish, endeavour to cut him out with Mademoiselle Martha. But I fear you will not have great success. I did not quite relish the last remark. That reminds me, I said. I meant to ask you how you knew about those two. Mon ami, I know human nature. Throw together a boy, young Renaud, and a beautiful girl like Mademoiselle Martha, and the result is almost inevitable. Then the quarrel. It was money or a woman. And remembering Leonie's description of the lad's anger, I decided on the latter. So I made my guess, and I was right. And that was why you warned me against setting my heart on the lady? You already suspected that she loved young Renault? Poirot smiled. At any rate, I saw that she had anxious eyes. That is how always to think of Mademoiselle Dupray, as the girl with the anxious eyes. His voice was so grave that it impressed me uncomfortably. What do you mean by that, Poirot? I fancy, my friend, that we shall see before very long. But I must start. You've oceans of time. Perhaps. Perhaps. But I like plenty of leisure at the station. I do not wish to rush, to hurry, to excite myself. At all events, I said, rising, I will come and see you off. You will do nothing of this sort. I forbid it. He was so peremptory that I stared at him in surprise. He nodded emphatically. I mean it, mon ami. Au revoir. You permit that I embrace you? Ah, no, I forget that it is not the English custom. Une poignée de main, alors. I felt rather at a loose end after Poirot had left me. I strolled down the beach and watched the bathers without feeling energetic enough to join them. I rather fancied that Cinderella might be disporting herself amongst them in some wonderful costume. Yet I saw no signs of her. I strolled aimlessly along the sands towards the further end of the town. It occurred to me that, after all, it would only be decent feeling on my part to inquire after the girl, and it would save trouble in the end. The matter would then be finished with. There would be no need for me to trouble about her any further. But if I did not go at all, she might quite possibly come and look me up at the villa, and that would be annoying in every way. Decidedly, it would be better to pay a short call, in the course of which I could make it quite clear that I could do nothing further for her in my capacity of showman. Accordingly, I left the beach and walked inland. I soon found the Hôtel du Fer, a very unpretentious building. It was annoying in the extreme not to know the lady's name, and to save my dignity, I decided to stroll inside and look around. Probably I should find her in the lounge. Merlonville was a small place, and you left your hotel to go to the beach, and you left the beach to return to the hotel. There were no other attractions. There was a casino being built, but it was not yet completed. I had walked the length of the beach without seeing her. Therefore she must be in the hotel. I went in. Several people were sitting in the tiny lounge, and my quarry was not amongst them. I looked into some other rooms, but there was no sign of her. I waited for some time, till my impatience got the better of me. I took the concierge aside and slipped five francs into his hand. I wish to see a lady who is staying here, 
a young English lady, small and dark. I am not sure of her name. The man shook his head, and seemed to be suppressing a grin. There is no such lady as you describe staying here. She is an American, possibly, I suggested. These fellows are so stupid. But the man continued to shake his head. No, monsieur. There are only six or seven English and American ladies altogether, and they are all much older than the lady you are seeking. It is not here that you will find her, monsieur. He was so positive that I felt doubts. But the lady told me she was staying here. Monsieur must have made a mistake, or it is more likely the lady did, since there has been another gentleman here inquiring for her. What is that you say? I cried, surprised. But yes, monsieur, a gentleman who described her just as you have done. What was he like? He was a small gentleman, well-dressed, very neat, very spotless, the moustache very stiff, the head of a peculiar shape, and the eyes green. Poirot! So that was why he refused to let me accompany him to the station. The impertinence of it! I would thank him not to meddle in my concerns. Did he fancy I needed a nurse to look after me? Thanking the man, I departed somewhat at a loss, and still much incensed with my meddlesome friend. I regretted that he was, for the moment, out of reach. I should have enjoyed telling him what I thought of his unwarranted interference. Had I not distinctly told him that I had no intention of seeing the girl? Decidedly, one's friends can be too zealous. But where was the lady? I set aside my wrath and tried to puzzle it out. Evidently, through inadvertence, she had named the wrong hotel. Then another thought struck me. Was it inadvertence? Or had she deliberately withheld her name and given me the wrong address? The more I thought about it, the more I felt convinced that this last surmise of mine was right. For some reason or other, she did not wish to let the acquaintance ripen into friendship. And though half an hour earlier this had been precisely my own view, I did not enjoy having the tables turned upon me. The whole affair was profoundly unsatisfactory, and I went up to the Villa Genovieve in a condition of distinct ill-humour. I did not go to the house, but went up the path to the little bench by the shed, and sat there moodily enough. I was distracted from my thoughts by the sound of voices close at hand. In a second or two I realised that they came, not from the garden I was in, but from the adjoining garden of the Villa Marguerite, and that they were approaching rapidly. A girl's voice was speaking, a voice that I recognised as that of the beautiful martyr. Cherie, she was saying, Is it really true? Are all our troubles over? You know it, Marta, Jack Renault replied. Nothing can part us now, beloved. The last obstacle to our union is removed. Nothing can take you from me. Nothing? The girl murmured. Oh, Jack, Jack, I am afraid. I had moved to depart, realizing that I was quite unintentionally eavesdropping. As I rose to my feet, I caught sight of them through a gap in the hedge. They stood together facing me, the man's arm round the girl his eyes looking into hers. They were a splendid-looking couple, the dark, well-knit boy, and the fair young goddess. They seemed made for each other as they stood there, happy, 
in spite of the terrible tragedy that overshadowed their young lives. But the girl's face was troubled, and Jack Renault seemed to recognize it, as he held her closer to him and asked, "'But what are you afraid of, darling? What is there to fear now?' And then I saw the look in her eyes, the look Poirot had spoken of, as she murmured, so that I almost guessed at the words, "'I am afraid for you.' I did not hear young Renaud's answer, for my attention was distracted by an unusual appearance a little further down the hedge. There appeared to be a brown bush there, which seemed odd, to say the least, so early in the summer. I stepped along to investigate, but at my advance the brown bush withdrew itself precipitately and faced me with a finger to its lips. It was Giraud. Enjoining caution, he led the way round the shed until we were out of earshot. "'What were you doing there?' I asked. "'Exactly what you were doing. Listening.' "'But I was not there on purpose.' "'Ah,' said Giraud, "'I was.' As always, I admired the man whilst disliking him. He looked me up and down with a sort of contemptuous disfavour. "'You didn't help matters by butting in. I might have heard something useful in a minute. What have you done with your old fossil?' "'Monsieur Poirot has gone to Paris,' I replied coldly. "'And I can tell you, Monsieur Giraud, that he is anything but an old fossil. "'He has solved many cases that have completely baffled the English police. "'Pah! The English police!' Giraud snapped his fingers disdainfully. "'They must be on a level with our examining magistrates. "'So he has gone to Paris, has he? Well, a good thing.' The longer he stays there, the better. But what does he think he will find there? I thought I read in the question a tinge of uneasiness. I drew myself up. That I am not at liberty to say, I said quietly. Giraud subjected me to a piercing stare. He has probably enough sense not to tell you, he remarked rudely. Good afternoon. I'm busy. And with that he turned on his heel and left me without ceremony. Matters seemed at a standstill at the Villa Genevieve. Giraud evidently did not desire my company, and from what I had seen it seemed fairly certain that Jacques Renaud did not either. I went back to the town, had an enjoyable bath, and returned to the hotel. I turned in early, wondering whether the following day would bring forth anything of interest. I was wholly unprepared for what it did bring forth— I was eating my petit déjeuner in the dining-room, when the waiter, who had been talking to someone outside, came back in obvious excitement. He hesitated for a minute, fidgeting with his napkin, and then burst out, "'Monsieur will pardon me, but he is connected, is he not, with the affair at the Villa Genevieve?' "'Yes,' I said eagerly. "'Why?' "'Monsieur has not heard the news, though.' "'What news?' "'That there has been another murder there last night.' What? Leaving my breakfast, I caught up my hat and ran as fast as I could. Another murder? And Poirot away? What fatality! Who had been murdered? I dashed in at the gate. A group of the servants was in the drive, talking and gesticulating. I caught hold of Francoise. What has happened? Oh, monsieur, monsieur, another death! It is terrible! 
There is a curse upon the house, but yes, I say it, a curse. They should send for Monsieur le Curé to bring some holy water. Never will I sleep another night under that roof. It might be my turn. Who knows? She crossed herself. Yes, I cried, but who has been killed? Do I know? Me? A man, a stranger. They found him up there, in the shed, not a hundred yards from where they had found poor Monsieur. And that is not all. He is stabbed, stabbed to the heart with the same dagger. Chapter 14 The Second Body Waiting for no more, I turned and ran up the path to the shed. The two men on guard there stood aside to let me pass, and filled with excitement, I entered. The light was dim. The place was a mere rough wooden erection to keep old pots and tools in. I had entered impetuously, but on the threshold I checked myself, fascinated by the spectacle before me. Giraud was on his hands and knees, a pocket-torch in his hand, with which he was examining every inch of the ground. He looked up with a frown at my entrance, then his face relaxed a little, in a sort of good-humoured contempt. "'Ah, c'est l'anglaise. Enter, then. Let us see what you can make of this affair.' Rather stung by his tone, I stooped my head and passed in. "'There he is,' said Giraud, flashing his torch to the far corner. I stepped across. The dead man lay straight upon his back. He was of medium height, swarthy of complexion, and possibly about fifty years of age. He was neatly dressed in a dark blue suit, well cut and probably made of an expensive tailor, but not new. His face was terribly convulsed, and on his left side, just over the heart, the hilt of a dagger stood up, black and shining. I recognized it. It was the same dagger I had seen reposing in the glass jar the preceding morning. "'I am expecting the doctor any minute,' explained Giraud. "'Although we hardly need him. There's no doubt what the man died of. He was stabbed to the heart, and death must have been pretty well instantaneous.' "'When was it done? Last night?' Giraud shook his head. "'Hardly. I don't lay down the law on medical evidence.' "'but the man's been dead well over twelve hours. "'When did you say you last saw that dagger?' "'About ten o'clock yesterday morning. "'Then I should be inclined to fix the crime "'as being done not long after that. "'But people were passing and repassing this shed continually.' "'Giraud laughed disagreeably. "'You progress to a marvel. "'Who told you he was killed in this shed?' "'Well, I felt flustered. "'I—I I assumed it. "'Oh, what a fine detective! "'Look at him, mon petit. "'Does a man stabbed to the heart fall like that, "'neatly, with his feet together, "'and his arms to his side? "'No. "'Again, does a man lie down on his back "'and permit himself to be stabbed "'without raising a hand to defend himself? "'It is absurd, is it not? "'But see here and here.' "'He flashed the torch along the ground.' I saw curious irregular marks in the soft dirt. He was dragged here after he was dead, half dragged, half carried by two people. Their tracks do not show on the hard ground outside, and here they have been careful to obliterate them. But one of the two, 
was a woman, my young friend. A woman? Yes. But if the tracks are obliterated, how do you know? Because blurred as they are, the prints of the woman's shoe are unmistakable. Also by this. And leaning forward, he drew something from the handle of the dagger and held it up for me to see. It was a woman's long black hair, similar to the one Poirot had taken from the armchair in the library. With a slightly ironic smile, he wound it round the dagger again. We will leave things as they are as much as possible, he explained. It pleases the examining magistrate. Eh bien, do you notice anything else? I was forced to shake my head. Look at his hands. I did. The nails were broken and discoloured, and the skin was hard. It hardly enlightened me as much as I should have liked it to have done. I looked up at Giraud. They are not the hands of a gentleman, he said, answering my look. On the contrary, his clothes are those of a well-to-do man. This is curious, is it not? Very curious, I agreed. And none of his clothing is marked. What do we learn from that? This man was trying to pass himself off as other than he was. He was masquerading. Why? Did he fear something? Was he trying to escape by disguising himself? As yet we do not know. But one thing we do know. He was as anxious to conceal his identity as we are to discover it. He looked down at the body again. As before, there are no fingerprints on the handle of the dagger. The murderer again wore gloves. You think then that the murderer was the same in both cases? I asked eagerly. Giraud became inscrutable. Never mind what I think. We shall see. Marchand! The sergeant de ville appeared at the doorway. Monsieur? Why is Madame Renault not here? I sent for her a quarter of an hour ago. She is coming up the path now, monsieur, and her son with her. Good. I only want one at a time, though. Marchot saluted and disappeared again. A moment later he reappeared with Mrs. Renel. Here is madame. Giraud came forward with a curt bow. This way, madame. He led her across, and then standing suddenly aside, Here is the man. Do you know him? As he spoke, his eyes, gimlet-like, bored into her face, seeking to read her mind, noting every indication of her manner. But Mrs. Renault remained perfectly calm, too calm, I felt. She looked down at the corpse almost without interest, certainly without any sign of agitation or recognition. No, she said, I have never seen him in my life. He is quite a stranger to me. You are sure? Quite sure. You do not recognize in him one of your assailants, for instance? No. She seemed to hesitate, as though struck by the idea. No, I do not think so. Of course they wore beards, false ones, the examining magistrate thought. But still, no. Now she seemed to make her mind up definitely. I am sure neither of the two was this man. Very well, madame. That is all, then. She stepped out with head erect, the sun flashing on the silver threads in her hair. Jack Renault succeeded her. He, too, failed to identify the man, 
in a completely natural manner. Giraud merely grunted. Whether he was pleased or chagrined, I could not tell. He merely called to Marchot. "'You have got the other there?' "'Yes, monsieur.' "'Bring her in, then.' The other was Madame de Bray. She came indignantly, protesting with vehemence. "'I object, monsieur. This is an outrage. What have I to do with all this?' "'Madame,' said Giraud brutally, "'I am investigating not one murder, but two murders. For all I know, you may have committed them both. How dare you!' she cried. "'How dare you insult me by such a wild accusation! It is infamous!' "'Infamous, is it? What about this?' Stooping, he again detached the hair and held it up. "'Do you see this, madame?' He advanced towards her. "'You permit that I see whether it matches?' With a cry she started backwards, white to the lips. "'It is false! I swear it! I know nothing of the crime, of either crime. Anyone who says I do lies. Ah, mon Dieu, what shall I do? Calm yourself, madame, said Giraud coldly. No one has accused you as yet, but you will do well to answer my questions without more ado. Anything you wish, monsieur? Look at the dead man. Have you ever seen him before? Drawing nearer, a little of the colour creeping back to her face, Madame de Bray looked down at the victim with a certain amount of interest and curiosity. Then she shook her head. I do not know him. It seemed impossible to doubt her. The words came so naturally. Giraud dismissed her with a nod of his head. You are letting her go? I asked in a low voice. Is that wise? "'Surely that black hair is from her head.' "'I do not need teaching my business,' said Giraud dryly. "'She is under surveillance. "'I have no wish to arrest her as yet.' "'Then, frowning, he gazed down at the body. "'Should you say that was a Spanish type at all?' he asked suddenly. "'I considered the face carefully. "'No,' I said at last. "'I should put him down as a Frenchman most decidedly.' Giraud gave a grunt of dissatisfaction. "'Same here.' He stood there for a moment. Then, with an imperative gesture, he waved me aside, and once more, on hands and knees, he continued his search of the floor of the shed. He was marvellous. Nothing escaped him. Inch by inch he went over the floor, turning over pots, examining old sacks. He pounced on a bundle by the door but it proved to be only a ragged coat and trousers, and he flung it down again with a snarl. Two pairs of old gloves interested him, but in the end he shook his head and laid them aside. Then he went back to the pots, methodically turning them over one by one. In the end he rose to his feet and shook his head thoughtfully. He seemed baffled and perplexed. I think he had forgotten my presence." but at that moment a stir and bustle was heard outside, and our old friend, the examining magistrate, accompanied by his clerk and Monsieur Bex, with the doctor behind him, came bustling in. "'But this is extraordinary, Monsieur Giraud,' cried Monsieur Rotet. "'Another crime! Ah, we have not got to the bottom of this case. There is some deep mystery here. 
But who is the victim this time? That is just what nobody can tell us, Monsieur Le Juge. He has not been identified. Where is the body? asked the doctor. Giraud moved aside a little. There, in the corner, he has been stabbed to the heart, as you see, and with the dagger that was stolen yesterday morning. I fancy that the murder followed hard upon the theft, but that is for you to say. You can handle the dagger freely. There are no fingerprints on it. The doctor knelt down by the dead man, and Giraud turned to the examining magistrate. A pretty little problem, is it not? But I shall solve it. And so no one can identify him, mused the magistrate. Could it possibly be one of the assassins? They may have fallen out among themselves. Giraud shook his head. The man is a Frenchman. I would take my oath of that. But at that moment they were interrupted by the doctor, who was sitting back on his heels with a perplexed expression. You say he was killed yesterday morning? I fix it by the theft of the dagger, explained Giraud. He may, of course, have been killed later in the day. Later in the day? Fiddlesticks! This man has been dead at least forty-eight hours, and probably longer. We stared at each other in blank amazement. Chapter 15 A Photograph The doctor's words were so surprising that we were all momentarily taken aback. Here was a man stabbed with a dagger which we knew to have been stolen only twenty-four hours previously, and yet Dr. Durand asserted positively that he had been dead at least forty-eight hours. The whole thing was fantastic to the last extreme. We were still recovering from the surprise of the doctor's announcement when a telegram was brought to me. It had been sent up from the hotel to the villa. I tore it open. It was from Poirot, and announced his return by the train arriving at Merlonville at 12.28. I looked at my watch, and saw that I had just time to get comfortably to the station and meet him there. I felt that it was of the utmost importance that he should know at once of the new and startling developments in the case. Evidently, I reflected, Poirot had had no difficulty in finding what he wanted in Paris. The quickness of his return proved that. Very few hours had sufficed. I wondered how he would take the exciting news I had to impart. The train was some minutes late, and I strolled aimlessly up and down the platform, until it occurred to me that I might pass the time by asking a few questions as to who had left Merlonville by the last train on the evening of the tragedy. I approached the chief porter, an intelligent-looking man, and had little difficulty in persuading him to enter upon the subject. It was a disgrace to the police, he hotly affirmed, that such brigands of assassins should be allowed to go about unpunished. I hinted that there was some possibility they might have left by the midnight train, but he negatived the idea decidedly. He would have noticed two foreigners, he was sure of it. Only about twenty people had left by the train, and he could not have failed to observe them. I do not know what put the idea into my head. Possibly it was the deep anxiety underlying Marta Dubray's tones, but I asked suddenly, "'Young Monsieur Renault, he did not leave by that train, did he?' "'Ah, no, Monsieur. To arrive and start off again within half an hour? 
It would not be amusing, that. I stared at the man, the significance of his words almost escaping me. Then I saw. You mean, I said, my heart beating a little, that Monsieur Jacques Renault arrived at Merlonville that evening? But yes, monsieur, by the last train arriving the other way, the eleven-forty. My brain whirled. That, then, was the reason of Marta's poignant anxiety. Jack Renault had been in Merlonville on the night of the crime. But why had he not said so? Why, on the contrary, had he led us to believe that he had remained in Cherbourg? Remembering his frank, boyish countenance, I could hardly bring myself to believe that he had any connection with the crime. Yet why this silence on his part about so vital a matter? One thing was certain. Marta had known all along. Hence her anxiety, and her eager questioning of Poirot, to know whether any one were suspected. My cogitations were interrupted by the arrival of the train, and in another moment I was greeting Poirot. The little man was radiant. He beamed and vociferated, and, forgetting my English reluctance, embraced me warmly on the platform. Mon cher ami, I have succeeded, but succeeded to a marvel. Indeed, I am delighted to hear it. Have you heard the latest here? How would you that I should hear anything? There have been some developments, eh? The brave Giraud, he has made an arrest, or even arrests, perhaps? Ah, but I will make him look foolish, that one. But where are you taking me, my friend? Do we not go to the hotel? It is necessary that I attend to my moustaches. They are deplorably limp from the heat of travelling. Also, without doubt, there is dust on my coat and my tie that I must rearrange. I cut short his remonstrances. My dear Poirot, never mind all that. We must go to the villa at once. There has been another murder. I have frequently been disappointed when fancying that I was giving news of importance to my friend. Either he has known it already, or he has dismissed it as irrelevant to the main issue. And in the latter case, events have usually proved him justified. But this time I could not complain of missing my effect. Never have I seen a man so flabbergasted. His jaw dropped. All the jauntiness went out of his bearing. He stared at me, open-mouthed. What is that, you say? Another murder? Ah, then. I am all wrong. I have failed. Giraud may mock himself at me. He will have reason. You did not expect it, then? I? Not the least in the world. It demolishes my theory. It ruins everything. It... Ah. No. He stopped dead, thumping himself on the chest. It is impossible. I cannot be wrong. The facts, taken methodically and in their proper order, admit of only one explanation. I must be right. I am right. But then, he interrupted me. Wait, my friend, I must be right. Therefore this new murder is impossible unless... Unless... Oh, wait. I implore you, say no word. He was silent for a moment or two. Then, resuming his normal manner, he said in a quiet, assured voice, The victim is a man of middle age. His body was found in the locked shed near the scene of the crime and has been dead at least forty-eight 
hours, and it is most probable that he was stabbed in a similar manner to Monsieur Renaud, although not necessarily in the back. It was my turn to gape, and gape I did. In all my knowledge of Poirot, he had never done anything so amazing as this, and almost inevitably a doubt crossed my mind. Poirot, I cried, you're pulling my leg. You've heard all about it already. He turned his earnest gaze upon me reproachfully. Would I do such a thing? I assure you that I have heard nothing whatsoever. Did you not observe the shock your news was to me? But how on earth could you know all that? I was right then, but I knew it. The little grey cells, my friend, the little grey cells, they told me. Thus, and in no other way, could there have been a second death. Now, tell me all. If we go round to the left here, we can take a short cut across the golf links, which will bring us to the back of the village on Vievre much more quickly. As we walked, taking the way he had indicated, I recounted all I knew. Poirot listened attentively. The dagger was in the wound, you say? That is curious. You are sure it was the same one? Absolutely certain. That's what makes it so impossible. Nothing is impossible. There may have been two daggers. I raised my eyebrows. Surely that is in the highest degree unlikely. It would be a most extraordinary coincidence. You speak as usual, without reflection, Hastings. In some cases, two identical weapons would be highly improbable, but not here. This particular weapon was a war souvenir, which was made to Jacques Renault's orders. It is really highly unlikely, when you come to think of it, that he should have had only one made. Very probably he would have another for his own use. But nobody has mentioned such a thing, I objected. A hint of the lecturer crept into Poirot's tone. My friend, in working upon a case, one does not take into account only the things that are mentioned. There is no reason to mention many things which may be important. Equally, there is often an excellent reason for not mentioning them. You can take your choice of the two motives. I was silent, impressed in spite of myself. Another few minutes brought us to the famous shed. We found all our friends there, and after an interchange of polite amenities, Poirot began his task. Having watched Giraud at work, I was keenly interested. Poirot bestowed but a cursory glance on the surroundings. The only thing he examined was the ragged coat and trousers by the door. A disdainful smile rose to Giraud's lips, and as though noting it, Poirot flung the bundle down again. "'Old clothes of the gardeners?' he queried. "'Exactly,' said Giraud. Poirot knelt down by the body. His fingers were rapid but methodical. He examined the texture of the clothes, and satisfied himself that there were no marks on them. The boots he subjected to special care, also the dirty and broken fingernails. Whilst examining the latter, he threw a quick question at Giraud. "'You saw these?' "'Yes, I saw them,' replied the other. His face remained inscrutable." Suddenly Poirot stiffened. "'Dr. Durand?' "'Yes.' 
The doctor came forward. There is foam on the lips. You observed it? I didn't notice it, I must admit. But you observe it now? Oh, certainly. Poirot again shot a question at Giraud. You noticed it without doubt? The other did not reply. Poirot proceeded. The dagger had been withdrawn from the wound. It reposed in a glass jar by the side of the body. Poirot examined it. Then he studied the wound closely. When he looked up, his eyes were excited, and shone with the green light I knew so well. It is a strange wound, this. It has not bled. There is no stain on the clothes. The blade of the dagger is slightly discoloured, that is all. What do you think, monsieur le docteur? I can only say that it is most abnormal. It is not abnormal at all. It is most simple. The man was stabbed after he was dead. And stilling the clamour of voices that arose with a wave of his hand, Poirot turned to Giraud and added, Monsieur Giraud agrees with me. Do you not, monsieur? Whatever Giraud's real belief, he accepted the position without moving a muscle. Calmly and almost scornfully, he replied, Certainly I agree. The murmur of surprise and interest broke out again. But what an idea, cried Monsieur Rotet, to stab a man after he is dead. Barbaric, unheard of. Some unappeasable hate, perhaps. No, Monsieur le Juge, said Poirot. I should fancy it was done quite cold-bloodedly, to create an impression. What impression? The impression it nearly did create, returned Poirot oracularly. Monsieur Bex had been thinking. How then was the man killed? He was not killed. He died. He died, Monsieur le Juge, if I am not much mistaken, of an epileptic fit. This statement of Poirot's again aroused considerable excitement. Dr. Durand knelt down again and made a searching examination. At last he rose to his feet. Well, monsieur le docteur? Monsieur Poirot, I am inclined to believe that you are correct in your assertion. I was misled to begin with. The incontrovertible fact that the man had been stabbed distracted my attention from any other indications. Poirot was the hero of the hour. The examining magistrate was profuse in compliments. Poirot responded gracefully, and then excused himself on the pretext that neither he nor I had yet lunched, and that he wished to repair the ravages of the journey. As we were about to leave the shed, Giraud approached us. "'One more thing, Monsieur Poirot,' he said in his suave, mocking voice. "'We found this coiled round the handle of the dagger, a woman's hair.' Ah, said Poirot, a woman's hair? What woman's, I wonder? I wonder also, said Giraud. Then with a bow, he left us. He was insistent, the good Giraud, said Poirot thoughtfully, as he walked towards the hotel. I wonder in what direction he hopes to mislead me. A woman's hair. <laughs> we lunched heartily, but I found Poirot somewhat distrait and inattentive. Afterwards we went up to our sitting-room, 
and there I begged him to tell me something of his mysterious journey to Paris. Willingly, my friend, I went to Paris to find this. He took from his pocket a small, faded newspaper cutting. It was the reproduction of a woman's photograph. He handed it to me. I uttered an exclamation. You recognize it, my friend? I nodded. Although the photo obviously dated from very many years back, and the hair was dressed in a different style, the likeness was unmistakable. Madame de Bray, I exclaimed. Poirot shook his head with a smile. Not quite correct, my friend. She did not call herself by that name in those days. This is the picture of the notorious Madame Beroldi. Madame Beroldi? In a flash the whole thing came back to me. The murder trial that had evoked such worldwide interest. The Beroldi case. <laughs> This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 4 of 7, by Agatha Christie. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Yes, now I think I'll leave to you what to give the rest. Choose for me, dear Santa Claus. You will know the best. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs>